here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Two great guests. They're always great guests, but sure, these are particularly great. One of them you may have heard of. He's on a little show called Pod Save America. He used to write speeches for this dude who was president, and uh, I guess I described a few different people that are on Pod Save America. This is John Favreau. And he and I are going to be having a conversation that's especially important right now as we are moving into the primaries. It is about how to deal with differences among people that basically agree, especially on the left. How do you deal with intra-left differences? That'll be in response to a listener question in the second segment of the show. The first segment is with Amani Gandhi. She is a writer for Rewire and the host of the podcast Boom Lawyered which I gather is like supposed to be like not boom lawyered, which I thought there might be things called boom lawyers, but it's boom lawyered. Like you just got lawyered. Anyway, I didn't know quite what we'd be talking about because there's a lot to talk about in reproductive rights. Uh, and there's a lot to talk about with her because she's like a great outspoken um, woman of color on Twitter. Conversation shifted around a bit and we did wind up talking about reproductive rights and talked about why it's really reproductive justice. And then we also talked about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is should white people apologize for being white? You'll hear her answer to that and more coming right I'd like to welcome to the show Amani Gandhi. She's a senior legal analyst for Rewire News and co-host of the Boom Lawyered podcast. Did I did I punctuate that correctly, Amani? Boom Lawyered, boom, or is it? lawyered. Yes, all right. <laughs> you boom. did. Thanks for having like, me. Boom, you've been lawyered. That kind of like exactly, exactly, right. That's exactly right. Because <laughs> I've been reading it as boom lawyered, as though there was like booms for lawyers, and I that didn't make any sense. Oh no, it's definitely like boom. You just got lawyered. Yeah, because that's what Jessica, Jessica, my partner Jessica Mason Piclo, and I do. We try to just lawyer everyone, turn everyone into law nerds. Well, you know, it, I'm glad we're starting off on this because one of the things I noticed in your bio is that. You're a recovering lawyer. Yes. So, so tell me yes. a, a bit about that because you because you now are a senior legal analyst at Rewire, which is a site that focuses on uh, reproductive rights news. Am I correct about that? Yeah, reproductive rights news, sexual health, sexual justice. Mostly, we're basically all reproductive justice, and since that's such a large umbrella, yeah. almost everything falls under it. So we cover 
everything from immigration to trans rights to, you know, legislative efforts in the state level and federal level and that sort of thing. I'm going to bit in for a second because I want to point out, like, I love that you uh, corrected me. It's not reproductive health. It's reproductive justice. Well, there's a difference between reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And I think that the the reproductive rights community is sort of moving towards the justice route simply because that incorporates a lot more issues. And reproductive rights has sort of been seen as this very white middle class focused effort where the effort is to make sure that abortion is legal and then that's it. And of course, even if abortion is legal, abortion access can be very difficult. And so while wealthy people, primarily wealthy white people, can afford to fly to Oregon, for example, or to Washington if they need a late a late term abortion, a later abortion, excuse me, um, poorer people, low income people, um, people of color may not have those resources. So there's no justice if there's no access. Um, and also reproductive justice refers to generally, you know, the right to decide whether and when to have children and the right to raise the children that you do have in a safe environment. And so that includes things like universal health care, the fight for universal health care, ch- you know, child care. That's where ICE comes in as well. Right. That's where immigration and ICE uh policy. Comes exactly. Well. Immigration. I mean, if you if you if you're, you know, Black Lives Matter, police brutality. I mean, if you're having a child and that child's going to be gunned down in the street, then you're not being able you're not being allowed to raise your child in a safe environment. So the reproductive justice rubric is very all encompassing and um, focuses on a lot more than just the right to an abortion. And I feel like it also captures the intersectionality of of these issues in a way that like you're Absolutely. referring to like reproductive rights isn't really I had a guest on the show talk about wanting to move from discussion of health policy to health justice which I think is a similar kind of framework mm. that seems pretty useful and centering it on people really rather than policy Absolutely absolutely because I mean we have the policy in this country is that abortion is legal up to the point of fetal fetal viability. So ostensibly any person who needs an abortion up to that point should be able to get one. And that includes if you're on Medicaid, right? So if you are a low income person and you're on Medicaid, uh, your abortion will not be covered. And so that's just discrimination in healthcare services. So that's what just justice focuses on allowing everyone who needs certain services to obtain certain services and to obtain them at a reasonable price. And so this this backs us up into something I I was curious about, which is that you describe yourself as a recovering lawyer. You, have you have you moved from law to justice, as it were? Yeah, I'd like to think that I have. Um, you know, I was in private practice for about a decade, and I did um, mostly I did um, insurance work, which can be kind of dry, but I'm kind of nerdy, so it kind of fit my personality. Um, so I did insurance work both on the defense side and the policyholder side. The defense is worse because insurance companies are terrible, and they're always trying to not pay out claims that they should. Um, and then I ended up working for banks during the foreclosure crisis for about you know, almost a year, maybe seven months. And that it was at that point that I really like took stock of my life and said, you know, I didn't go to law school to, you know, help banks um, foreclose on people. I mean, the, my part of the job was to help people do the loan mods under the HAMP program at the time. But, you know, ultimately I was working in a system that was harming people 
And I just didn't see any value in that. So I essentially just quit <laughs> and decided I was going to try and get into and, you know, try and change my life and do something to help people. Because I originally went to law school thinking I'm going to help women and it's going to be great. And then, you know, you, you leave law school and they dangle all this money in front of you and you, it's easy to get swayed by that. And so it took me a while to sort of clear the cobwebs from my eyes and realize that's not the life that I wanted. So I essentially sat in my apartment for two years blogging about politics and, you know, rabble rousing on the Internet about all of the bills and the terrible legislation that was being passed all over the country. And I started sort of um, hooking up with other reproductive rights advocates and reproductive justice advocates and essentially tried to crowdsource a database of anti-choice legislation in my perfect world, it was going to be like this forum for people who are super into repro. And we would be able to share information about bills that were being passed in our states and coordinate, you know, protests and hearings and whatnot. Um, And so I did that for about a year. And then my boss, my current boss, Jody Jacobson, you know, called me up and was like, hey, would you like to get paid to do this? And I said, yes, I really would, (laughs) because I was running out of money and concerned I'd have to go back to private practice. So That was 2012. I became a full-time employee in 2013, and I've been at Rewire for five years now. And it's been great. It's one of the best jobs I've ever held. Um, I'm able to partner up with Jessica Mason Piclo, who's one of the smartest women I know. And so it's just been really, really good to feel like I am finally doing what I set out to do when I was 28, you know, at the age of now that I'm 43. So it took me a while, but I got here. Well, it did, took you a while, but you decided so this, so doing my math a little bit here, but that means you decided in your late 30s that you're going to change things? Yeah, yeah. I quit um, private practice in 2011. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was about 38 and it, was, it took me to about, well, I guess I was about 37. I think I was maybe 38 when we Rewire hired me. At the time, we were known as RH Reality Check. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was a late bloomer. When it comes to justice advocacy, I was, a, I was definitely a late bloomer. So I see a lot of young people on Twitter and in social media who are going to law school to learn about reproductive rights. And I just, I'm I'm so amazed and awed by that because honestly, at the time, it would not ever even really occurred to me. I was just like, I'm going to law school. And I just went (laughs) to law school. But, you know, the fact that there are people who are going to law school specifically for justice, I think is really impressive and laudable. So you are someone whose career, I share this with you, I started a little bit earlier in my career, but but my career has been enabled by the interwebs. You know, like yes. I, I was able to bypass a lot of gatekeepers um, and jump over some hurdles that are in other people's way because of the Internet. But yes, you're also <laughs> we have some other things in common and one significant thing not in common, which is. uh really uh, highlighted by your Twitter username, which is? Yes. <laughs> Angry Black Lady. Again, so we two out of three ain't bad. Um, <laughs> but, it, but I defer, obviously. I mean, I want, I'm joking about it, but this is a serious issue, which is that so you both have in, your career enabled by the Internet, but you put it right out there. You are in the category of people who get subjected to some of the worst abuse online. Like some pretty yeah, vile stuff. I, I do. It's pretty, it, it, it's actually over the last, I say year, it's gotten a lot better. It has gotten a lot better as Twitter has finally started to take it more seriously. So when they introduced the quality filter feature, that helped a lot. And then when they introduced the capacity to mute 
people with fewer with new accounts to mute people who haven't ver- who haven't you know verified their phone number or email or don't have a photo those sorts of things have all enabled me to sort of filter out most of the garbage from my timeline but in the earlier days i mean i've been on twitter since 2009 um, I would say I started having like the number of followers to where you become sort of a presence and therefore a target. I'd say I, that happened to me starting in around 2012. And even back then I didn't have 20,000 followers yet, but there's just some, there's like a threshold number where once you cross that number, it's like all hell breaks loose on Twitter for some, for women and for people of color, I think. Oh, for some reason, um, what could that so reason you, be? Yes. First, <laughs> why, I don't know what the reason is. It might have something to do with, I don't know, some, there's a word, pa- patriarch, patriarchy. I think that's the word. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't well, know. What do again, I know? I'm just a crazy black it, lady. But this, this Amnesty International study. But it's study, deadly serious. It's deadly. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's deadly literally serious, deadly serious. And 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 one of the ways that I have dealt with it is through laughing about it. I mean, the first time someone called me the N-word on Twitter, I cried. It was t- like late 2011. And I was like, what? You know, like I hadn't I hadn't heard that had that word lobbed at me since I was in school. So it was just kind of like I was taken aback. And now, you know, and cut to four or five years later, people call me that. And I'm like, really? It's like Tuesday morning. Can we just wait until I've had my coffee before we start with the racial slurs? It just <laughs> rolls right off of my back. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing that I've become used to it and acclimated to it. I think that says something pretty shitty about our society. But I mean, there you have it. I mean, Twitter can just be a cesspool of racism and misogyny and transphobia and homophobia and just every kind of just gnarly quality of your average MAGA hat wearing idiot. It's just like it's it's difficult to deal with. Um but, you know, I, I've I've managed to deal with it. It's sort of, you know, Twitter is a blessing and a curse. Uh, you know, I all of the job I got my job through Twitter. I got my job at RH Reality Check through Twitter. I hosted a podcast called This Week in Blackness for several years. And I met my co-host there, my co-host there on Twitter. A lot of the repro justice advocates that I know and sort of, you know, circ- uh, I don't know. I'm going to call them like my cohorts, but you know, a lot of the repro justice advocates that I know and work with, I've met through Twitter. So it's been an amazing resource, but at the same time, some days I'm just like, I can't, you know, there's sometimes, sometimes I'll tweet something and it'll go viral and it'll just attract the wrong type of people. And those are days I'm just like, you know what, maybe I'll just, I'm learning, I'm learning to walk away from Twitter and not be on Twitter as much, even though it may not seem that way from the amount that I tweet, but I feel like I tweet, I used to tweet a whole hell of a lot more. So I'm trying to do more of that self-care thing, I guess, now in the Trump administration. That's just really important because it's just a fire hose of awful, terrible news at all times. And so it can become difficult to deal with. Yeah, I think a lot of people can identify with that. I do sometimes think that people need to, I would say people, I do sometimes think that people with privilege need to be aware that however bad they're feeling by the fire hose of awfulness, (laughs) you know, there's there's people that are going to be feeling worse. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be quite honest, you know, I am a black woman living in this country and it's particularly bad for black women living in this country. But I also have a level of economic privilege that a lot that kind of insulates me from a lot of the bad shit. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent upon me to sort of shine a light on things like you know, gender, ba- gender um, inequality, like bathroom inequality, you know, these bathroom bills that have been, people have been trying to pass, these bigots have been trying to pass or to shine a light on, you know, the the ICE deportations and the roundups that are going on and the, and, and the, the dangers that 
undocumented people face. I mean, there are a lot of people who are really under siege right now in this country. And it's like, you know, it's hard sometimes when you also feel like you're under siege to step outside of your own little bubble and really recognize that for a lot of people, as you said, it is so much worse. And, you know, it's important that we not only recognize that, but try to protect one another where we can. And that protecting one another can actually be a source of self-care and a source of, you know, uh, resilience, I feel like. I think that sometimes if we can put ourselves in a position to be helpful for others, uh, it can make the tidal wave of awfulness that we feel like not not be so present, you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, you know, there are really certain certainly ways that people of privilege can do things that will make themselves feel better but also help other people, you know, like, you know, step saying something if you see an ICE deportation situation going on and making sure that, you know, the the Border Patrol agents know that what they're doing isn't OK. Or if you see police brutality or police misconduct to stick around and make sure the person who's the subject of it is OK. I mean, just, you know, recently there was the situation with um, that Oakland, the woman in Oakland who decided to call the cops on the black person that was barbecuing at Lake Merritt, which is right near my house. Um, and then you see at the end of that video exchange, there's a white woman who's just standing there, just like filming this woman walking around her and making sure that that woman knew that what she was doing was not okay. So definitely that's the sort of thing that people can do to just help other people, which is, you know, a goal in and of itself, but also to help yourself feel better, which is not a bad secondary goal. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office, one of my favorite federal agencies, right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier picks it up. Just click print mail and you're done. It could not be easier. I have said before, I am an official LLC these days. I do not have a regular job. I do this podcast and some other stuff, and I'm a business. I have uh, businessy things to mail, including things like merch, uh, gifts to if people have been on the show. And I, I can keep it all separate, and I can do it all from my desk, and I can do it all asynchronously with the rest of the world, meaning I don't have to live on anyone else's schedule. I am not a nine to five person and stamps.com is for people like me and perhaps people like you. You can get a special offer using the code friends that includes $55 of free postage, a digital scale and a four week trial. Don't wait, go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com and enter friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to 
for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I've been thinking about that a lot in light of some of news stories that have come out. I, I didn't mean for us to be doing media criticism, but I, I think this is going to segue okay. Uh, there was a story that came out not uh, this week about how much money uh, White House reporters are making off of cable news deals and book deals. And Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, six-figure deals for White House reporters. Uh, and then there was an article about um, there's in New York Magazine, the headline of which was the Democratic Party's MSNBC problem. And it was not maybe what a conservative might think it was. It, it was actually the problem with MSNBC is it's not enough like Fox in the sense that MSNBC is an echo chamber for elite concerns about Trump. It is, a, it is an echo chamber for the Russia investigation, it is an echo chamber for sort of general kind of Trump being Trumpy. Stories, yeah. you know, uh, palace intrigue at the White House, um, you know, when he says something offensive, like, oh, or, his, or, you know, one of his lieutenants says something offensive. Like, I've been looking at this John McCain story, this like the aide who said something nasty about John McCain, and I'll put it out there. I'm actually, I'm a fan of John McCain's in general, but Jesus fucking Christ, maybe we can get them to say something <laughs> nasty about Puerto Rico. Like, and then reporters right. will, like, not stop talking about that. Like, what, do, you know, like this John McCain yeah. insult has gotten more coverage in the past, you know, week than uh, the almost complete, uh, you know, criminalization of abortions in Iowa, which is something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, the ice, yeah. ice raids, uh, the problem, the fact that people in Puerto Rico still don't have power, you know, like what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I, yeah, I don't, I, I honestly don't understand what's going on with the media these days. I mean, it's just like, it seems like every other op-ed I see from the New York Times is about some poor down and out Trump voter who really just can't believe that Trump is doing all of these things that are harming him personally because he thought Trump was only going to harm the other people. And it's just this sort of, this sort of idea that by criticizing the quote unquote alt-right, we are pushing people oh, towards yeah. the alt-right and this idea that Trump voters are now sad because, oh, this tariff policy or the fight with China or whatever the hell is going on at any given time, you know, they de they deported the guy who owns the only Mexican restaurant in town. I mean, I swear I've seen three articles that are something like that. It's like, where is the empathy for the people who are actually suffering? Like mm -hmm. the people not 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 that there are not Trump voters who are actually suffering, but who, who voted the really the wrong way. And in a lot of cases, I think voted their racism. But what about the people who didn't vote for this? What about which is the most of the country? Which, let's keep this? reminding everyone, which is 
the majority Which of the country. Which was most of the country. <laughs> but where are the articles about them? Where are the, I, It's just, I don't understand this obsession with the Trump voters and this obsession with Trump himself. And it's like, that's what got us here in the first place. You know, everyone, co- people were covering the primary like it was a big joke. And then when it, it, when it became obvious that it was really serious, it was almost too late to backtrack. He was already making these networks so much money that all they did was cover him to the exclusion of almost everything else. So it's, yeah, I don't, I'm very disappointed in the way the media has been handling this. There are so many actual crucial issues that are facing people that are affecting their lives. And we're still talking about a a shitty insult, a shitty shitty mocking insult that someone made about John McCain. I mean, come on, really? (laughs) It's very frustrating. I was thinking about that. I was was in, in my mind connecting that to the discussion of what people with privilege can do, you know, and and I think one of those things is elevate the right kinds of conversations, you know, like if in your circle, everyone's talking about impeachment, maybe like uh, talk about Iowa, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> right. Like if, if, if you're, if your cohort, if what they want to do is talk about the palace intrigue of the Trump white house, how about some intrigue uh, around, you know, foster care or SNAP benefits, like right things that are that are also under attack and that are a part yeah. that, that real people are dealing with on a daily basis. And that's just doesn't seem to be sexy to people. So, hey, yeah. fellow middle class, well-meaning white people <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that's just that stuff isn't that sexy. I mean, who wants to talk about snap benefits when they can talk about the P tape? You know, and I've been guilty of it, too. Like I make a joke here or there about the P tape. But my Twitter feed is primarily about reproductive rights, reproductive justice. Occasionally, if something outrageous happens with the Trump Russia stuff, I'll throw a tweet in there. But I'm not one of those people that's been following that, you know, as closely as others. I mean, there are people whose entire Twitter is just following that. And that's great for them. That's especially if they're experts. I mean, for like Sarah Kenzier, for example, she's like an expert in this stuff. So it makes sense that she would be focusing on this and not reproductive rights because I'm the expert in repro rights and she's the expert in this sort of foreign policy stuff. But yeah, I do see a lot of just even just non-journalists who really are just overly focused on this, what I think is a fantasy that Trump is going to get impeached. I mean, I would love it if he were to get impeached. Um, and I, I just, I, I think that there are more useful ways to spend one's time. If you only have a, a, an allotted amount of time to rabble rouse on the internet or on Twitter, I mean, there's more useful ways to do it than just, you know, praying Robert Mueller is going to come up with something. I don't know. It's yeah. just, and I spend way too much time on Twitter myself. So maybe this isn't really a problem. Maybe cause I, maybe my own perception has been warped by the fact I spend time on Twitter and the fact that I, I watch too much cable news. But I, I do feel like the Democratic Party and actual candidates are trying their best to talk about issues that are affecting their constituents. And the media and pundits are doing a terrible job of that. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the media, it's just the, the Trump Russia stuff is really salacious, you know, and it's sort of I mean, I imagine yeah. this is what it must have felt like in the late 70s or the early 70s, you know, with Watergate. Um, but at the same time, it's like. There's just there's just more going on. You know what I mean? There are rights that are being people's rights are being chipped away in such a dramatic way. I mean, there are I mean, Alec, for example, is trying to get states to agree to hold a constitutional goddamn convention. You know, if if there is a constitutional convention, 
There is no end to the amount of nonsense that's going to happen. I mean, I honestly think that they're going to amend the Constitution to ban same-sex marriage. I think, you know, I think LGBTQ rights are certainly not safe. I think a lot of people seem to think, oh, well, you know, same-sex marriage, everything's fine. Well, no, there are still states that are passing laws that are based on this sort of religious, sincerely religious belief or this religious freedom argument that they have a right to not serve gay people, that they have a right to discriminate against LGBTQ people when it comes to housing, when it comes to adoption, when it comes to all sorts of things. And I think that a lot of folks have sort of dropped the ball when it comes to keeping a light on those subjects. Um I also think if there's a constitutional convention, we're absolutely going to get a personhood amendment. And there goes most forms of contraception, some forms of um, in, of infertility treatments and all abortion. And so and, and I think that we are so much closer to that sort of drastic scenario, this dystopian scenario than people think. And I think that that notion is so scary to some people that we might actually be marching towards Gilead in a really systematic and scary way. I think it's easier for people to focus on Putin and Trump and Russia, because if I focus on these actual issues, it gets real scary. I mean, there are times when I literally sit and think where we're heading and I'm really nervous about it. And I really and I really think that if we end up where I fear we end up, it's going to be like 60 percent the media's fault because they're covering the wrong stuff. You know, like Rachel Maddow should be covering the fact that Alec is trying to hold a constitutional convention like every night, you know, but instead it's the latest, you know, minute plot twist in the Trump-Russia scandal. So I don't know. I have a theory about this, about why a lot of mainstream outlets, legacy outlets um, and pundits are attracted to talking about Trump intrigue and and Russia meddling rather than these more um, fraught and immediate issues. And it is that... It is easier for pundits to have an opinion on Putin and an opinion on how awful Trump is as a person. Like those are safe opinions to have. No one's going to get mad at you in the green room if if you're right. like, I don't think Putin should interfere in American elections, you know, right. and also because we also because also we have this huge like never Trump coalition, right, which includes uh, some uh, a lot of conservatives who still have some uh, socially conservative uh, beliefs. But if you tried right. to, like, if you said, I'm an anti-person, I w- I'm worried about a personhood amendment, you know, I mean, somebody, even some of the people that I know and like, who are considered to be, you know, allies to a certain extent would probably want to fight about that. You know, like y- y- you, yeah. it would get a lot messier. It would get a lot messier yeah, I mean, to talk about some of these problems. You know, certainly when it comes to issues like religious freedom, you know, LGBTQ rights, abortion rights, those are stickier, you know, stickier issues. But I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that people are unwilling to engage in the stickiness of the issues. And that's where we really need to be because we got we have the whole Trump Russia thing covered. There's really nothing that the media can do until Mueller finishes his investigation. I I don't understand this need to follow every little bit of minutia. I mean, I lived through it during the the Ken Starr business. I mean, I was a paralegal in D.C. during the Bill Clinton impeachment. And it was the same way. It was just every minute detail. But at the time there, you know, the country was relatively prosperous. So there wasn't a whole lot else going on right now. It's just a shit show. And the fact that we are focusing almost a hundred percent on this one aspect of this nonsense presidency 
when there are actual people's lives at stake. I mean, people are being rounded up by ICE at alarming rates. Now they're going to separate families at the border and put kids in military camps. I mean, this is this sounds like fascism to me. I mean, I know a lot of people throw that word around and people are like, oh, gosh, here you go again. Another liberal, another progressive using the word fascism. But what do you call it when you're separating kids from their parents and putting them on military bases? Yeah, I I agree. And also I've had for some reason internment camps have been the thing that I have been some sort of marker to me. Like, I think that could happen. I think, and I've said that since Trump got the nomination and for some, absolutely because it's happened before, right? It's happened multiple times in American history. You know, indigenous people before and the Supreme court has said it's fine. And that's, you know, yep. That is. Yeah. Yes. It's scary. And and this is the, this is the march towards it. When we talk about separating, separating families at the border and putting, putting families or children at military camps to me, that's like, that's, Sounds a lot like, you know, especially since these are people who are entering the country. Actually, they're entering legally. There's a whole like this weird misinformation campaign that, you know, my listeners probably don't need to be educated on this. But those people that are asking for asylum, that's a legal thing to do. That is like, oh, yeah, absolutely. that is is not illegally entering the United States. (laughs) That is is, just no no other way to put it, (laughs) you know, like uh, and. So you're putting people who have entered this, entered this country legally, you know, into prison camps, basically. So, right. Yeah. And I mean, I think the mass, the, the misinformation p- campaign is part of it. Right. I mean, if you can make people believe that this group of people who are doing everything that they're supposed to be doing are actually taking something from you, then you can rile people up to in a point where they're ignoring the fact that you're screwing them on trade or you know, minimum wage or, you know, environment on the environment, any number of things that are actually affecting people's lives. No one's life is being affected by an asylum seeker trying to come to the country because they're fleeing violence. I mean, it's just, (laughs) (laughs) I kind of lose my words too. Are you paying attention, not just to this podcast, but to everything? If you're like me, when you're not listening to podcasts, you're reading about the latest ideas and issues in your favorite magazines, and you can get all the magazines that matter with Texture. Texture is the app that offers over 200 top magazines all in one place. And with Texture, you get complete issues and back issues with titles like Time, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker all in one app. If you want something lighter, you have People and Cosmo and Entertainment Weekly. Texture delivers the best of both worlds with newsworthy stories and relaxing entertainment anytime, anywhere. Magazines are where you find quality journalism, beautiful photos, in-depth interviews, and perspectives that show you all sides of the story. It's hard to get that anywhere else than in a magazine. I say this as someone who has written for online for basically my entire career. Magazines are a little different. And you can dive deep into the issues you care about today with Texture. Texture is usually $9.99 a month, but they're giving my listeners a free trial. To start your seven-day free trial, go to texture.com slash friends. Again, let's go to texture.com slash friends to start reading the latest issue of your favorite magazines today. I think talking about the massive problems that are happening or talking about, you know, the possibility of interning camps and our march towards Gilead, it brings me uh, to something that you tweeted about not too long ago that I have very direct personal interest in, which is that um, you'd like white people to stop apologizing for being white. And yes, so 
Yeah. I, I understand that. Uh, uh. But also, <laughs> there's a part of me that's like, <laughs> are you sure? I'm sorry for being like... <laughs> are you sure? Because <laughs> I feel pretty bad. Yeah, I mean... But well, I, yeah, I mean, it's fine to feel bad. I mean, you actually, know, you probably should I, feel bad. I, but go ahead, you go ahead. Sorry. You should, yeah. I mean, you probably should feel bad. But the point, um, the point I was trying to make, and is that apologizing for being white doesn't really do anything or help the people who are being oppressed by white supremacy and the privileges that you benefit from. Right. So it's fine. If you want to be like, if someone says something shitty and you're like, man, I really apologize for that. Or I apologize for being white. But at the same time, you need to be using the privilege that you have to actively help black people dismantle white supremacy. Cause we can't do it ourselves. We didn't make this situation. We didn't, we didn't build this. You know what I mean? If you want to talk, go back to the Obama years, we yeah. didn't build this. So we, it's not our responsibility to dismantle it. And there are so many, and I know it seems like such a daunting thing. Like how can I, you know, John Q white person dismantle white supremacy. And, and I'm not, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be some large grand gesture. It can be very, you know, small things that you do on a, on a daily basis. Like, you know, if you have a black coworker who you notice is always being talked over in meetings Maybe say, hey, you know, so-and-so is talking. Why don't we listen to what she has to say? Or if you're working on a project with a person of color and you know that, you know, you're getting all of the credit for it and they're not getting any, maybe say, hey, you know what? I didn't do this by myself. So-and-so helped. I, I think I said on Twitter, Jessica, who's my partner in crime, did that for me when we first started working together. We wrote a piece together and she was like, yeah, your byline should go first. And I was like, well, you've been writing longer and you're senior to me, so probably yours should go first. She's like, no, because either way, people are going to think I did all the work anyway because I'm white. And I was like, you know what? That's a really fucking cool thing for you to do and to say. And I felt really touched by that. So there are there are ways that individual people can make a difference if they just, you know, look for those opportunities. Like I said earlier, if you see someone being harassed, step up and say, you know, I'll wait with you while you, the police question you or while this is going on. There's so many little things. And the, and like, as you said earlier, those little things not only help the other person, but they can make you feel less powerless. Right. Because I think so much of the trauma that, you know, those of us are who, who oppose this administration are going through is this feeling of utter powerlessness. Like there's nothing that this man can do that will get him into trouble. I mean, he just what did he just get like a basically basically a five hundred billion dollar bribe from China? Like no one's talking about that. Um, and it's just this this overwhelming feeling that I can't do anything to stop this. If you actually start doing tiny little things to help stop this, you'll you'll feel more powerful. You'll feel more empowered. And that might empower you to do bigger and, you know, more sweeping things. So. But yeah, apologizing for being white, it's just like, that's just like the lowest hanging fruit. You know what I mean? Like, if you're going to apologize to a black person for being white, please also do something else. Because, I, I mean, what do you want a black person to say? I'm sorry. You're welcome. Thank you. Like, well, you know, I really can tell you, thing. I think what the dream is, is that the black person will say it's OK. And then you can just go on being white. Because I, right, exactly. I, I and often that's frame exactly this not helpful. in terms of so I'm in recovery. Right. And uh, I often frame this in terms of how we deal with past misdeeds and recovery, which is that you don't uh -huh. apologize for them. You, you make amends. Right. Because just apologizing is something that drunk people and addicts do all the time. Like we're always going up to people and being, Oh man, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Right. I'll never right. do that again. And then the person forgives us and we're like, all right, can do it again now. <laughs> you know, like, even right. if we're not right. consciously exactly. thinking I'll do it again. 
it's almost you get you get your you know you're able to able to walk away from the conversation feeling like you've had a weight lifted but that's not what should be happening you should still have to carry that weight until you do something to alleviate it like until you actually right. and also you're kind of just transferring that weight to the other person because then yep. you're you're putting the onus on the other person to somehow absolve you yep and and that's just you know we Black people have enough to do. You know what I mean? Like we can't be running around absolving white people of like their whatever sins they think they may have committed. You know, it's like, just get out there, be white, but do something with it. You know, like use your whiteness for good. Yeah. I, I also think that that's actually another point that I kind of got from you saying you'd like white people to stop advertising for being white, which is that own your whiteness. I mean, just yeah. do it. I mean, you, I, you're, I'm never yeah. going to stop being white. So uh, I was Hopefully people know. I was kidding when I was talking about, are you sure I don't want to apologize? Because I'm sure that you don't want me to apologize. Like, and I don't want to apologize. What I want to do is make things better. What I want to do is go ahead and be the person that I am, which happens to be white, and use that in whatever way that I can. And again, I think these can be really small things. And I'm going to go back to elevating the right conversations, elevating the the voices of people who are not, you know, straight, white, cis, you know, people like just exactly. do your best to elevate those other voices and i swear to god like even that small a thing will make you feel better and give you the energy you absolutely need to resist other things absolutely you know and i do the same thing you know i try to elevate trans voices and in, you know i made a serious effort to start following more trans people a while uh, you know a couple of years ago I made a more serious effort to work on my ableism and it occurs to me that yep. I used the word idiot earlier in the show and I shouldn't have said that because that's ableist. You know, that's these are always things that I'm working on. But, you know, if I have a Twitter list that I've been curating for about four or five years now, it's just called my Femmes of Color list. And it's got maybe a thousand people on it now. And I remember at the beginning of the Trump administration, I tweeted out like, hey, you know, we're about to enter a new era. So if you're looking for people you know, different voices to to listen to. Here's a huge list. And so I got a lot of white folks being like, oh, thank you. And so now there are more people who are listening to more voices of color, more trans voices, more gay voices, because those are the voices, those are the people that are being most affected by what's going on. And so those are the people that need to be heard. So I agree with you. Something as simple as, as following 20 more black people, 20 more trans people on Twitter than you did yesterday can feel like, okay, I'm doing something. And it's a little something, but a little something can lead to a, a, you know, a slightly bigger something, which can lead to a huge something. And then next thing you know, you're like leading Black Lives Matter protests in the hood or something. I don't know. But like, well, you're the just, point you're, is, you're just, is that, you know these issues, you, you're, you're knowing about a different set of issues, which I think is actually. Yeah, yeah. And you're able to talk to your friends in your community. So much of, of dismantling white supremacy is talking to other white people if you're white. So I get a lot of white folks in my mentions who kind of want to tell me all of the stuff that they think about white supremacy and white privilege and whatever. I'm like, this is all great. You're telling me all stuff that I know. You need to be telling this stuff to other white people. You know, you need to be telling this stuff to your family at dinner. Like, I get it, man. I'm a black woman. I know. And I understand the need to to want to interact. And I really do like interacting with people. But after a while, it's like, okay. White folks, talk to each other, go over there and talk to each other. It's cool, you know? And so I appreciate the platform that I have. And I appreciate that people feel like they want to tell me their stories. But at the same time, like, I really want to encourage people who do that to make sure they're not just talking to the to the Black people that they, that, that they know or the trans people that they know and explaining to them 
Like, I feel your struggle. I get what you're going through, but also trying to make sure that the people that you know who may not get it are, you're working with them to help them get it. Right. And speaking of elevating voices and elevating the right conversations, we don't have a ton of time left, but I would, it would be a great sin of mine to not talk about what is happening in Iowa, which is you know, here in Minnesota, our next door neighbor. Um, they have essentially outlawed abortion. Yep. They have. Um, and it's going to, I mean, the uh, ACLU of Iowa and Planned Parenthood have already sued. They filed a suit on Tuesday. It's it's going to be blocked by next week. I guarantee it. Um, I'm very kind of cavalier about these things now because I've been following the courts in these cases for so long and it just follows a pattern. You know, they pass a ridiculous law, somebody sues and it's blocked. The real concern is the sort of overarching strategy behind the passage of these kinds of laws. And that is, they're just going to keep filing these lawsuits in the hopes that at some point the makeup of the Supreme Court will change and then they'll have a chance to um, reverse row or at least chip away so much at access that the right to an abortion means essentially nothing. So while I'm not concerned about this particular law and I don't really think Iowans need to be concerned about this particular law, I do think that the trend of these laws being passed is a concern for everyone in the country, at least for everyone who's not living in like California or Washington or, you know, one of the states that is very, very pro-choice. Right. I also think that another thing that's happening here in the Midwest is uh, debates over Title 10, which I imagine would be something else that is of larger concern to you than these uh, overly restrictive abortion bans that are passed and then overturned. The the real issue, I think the real problem when it comes to, you know, family planning, contraception and whatnot is the religious right. Right. I mean, the religious right has been attacking family planning services for a really long time. And especially with respect to, you know, the, the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the birth control benefit or the birth control, the contraception mandate, as it's more commonly uh, known as. You know, the the fervor with which the religious right, you know, gathered its strength to oppose providing contraception for no copay if if you're providing insurance to your to your employees was really kind of remarkable. I mean, to the to the point where there were some people, some universities and, and organizations that were suing that already offered those services in their health care plans, realized that when they decided they opposed it and then wanted to take it out. Mm. So it's just it's just it's just this sort of relentless need to control women, to control women's bodies, to control pregnant people, to control pregnant people's bodies in a way that is kind of rabid. You know what I mean? It's just so the just it's I can't really describe it. It just feels like this rabid effort to control us in a way that we will no will no longer have any rights over our own bodies. We'll no longer have any protection when it comes to economics, because obviously when and whether to have a child plays very heavily into one's economic status. And if you can't afford to have a child and you're being forced to have a child, then what does that mean? It means that you're just, you're just, you're basically, you're sunk into poverty. I mean, studies show that when people aren't able to get abortions that they want, they they are sunk into poverty. And so they're sunk into poverty and they end up on Medicaid and then they may get pregnant again and they can't get an abortion because Medicaid doesn't cover it. And it's just this vicious circle. And so if, and I don't, I will never understand how it is these folks square this circle of, we don't want abortion, but also we don't want contraception. Hmm. And, and I know that part of it is that they, 
have a misunderstanding of the science of contraception. I mean, they think that, for example, the morning after pill is an abortifacient. It causes an abortion when it doesn't. I mean, that's just absolutely not true. But, you know, if they believe it and they really sincerely believe it, then a court can look at that belief and say, well, you know, it may not be true, but you guys really believe it. So, okay. And that's essentially what happened in Hobby Lobby in the Hobby Lobby Mm -hmm. case. So, I I don't really have a whole lot of good news (laughs) for your listeners, but we just got to kind of hope that Anthony Kennedy, just got to hope that all the liberal justices (laughs) and Anthony Kennedy stay alive at this point. Pray for the hell of liberal justices. Seriously, just crowdsource organs and blood and just be ready to like provide. I'll give up my body for Ruth Bader Ginsburg if I have to, because we need these people to stay alive and on the court. Because if Trump appoints one more justice, it's lights out for a generation. Mm. Well, on that note, um, (laughs) (laughs) that cheery note. (laughs) Uh, So thank you for coming on the show. I'm it is unfortunate that we had to end on that note, but I think it's the appropriate one to end on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) All right. And people can find you on Rewire and on the podcast. Boom Lawyer. Right. You can find me uh, Rewire.news and you can find me my podcast Boom Lawyered and on Twitter at Angry Black Lady. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. Thrive Market is my favorite new online store. Okay, I have a lot of favorite online stores, but Thrive Market is my favorite for groceries and organic and healthy products. Thrive Market has all the top premium and healthy organic products that I usually get from a grocery store, but unlike your typical organic and non-GMO products that are marked up to premium prices, Thrive Market sells the same organic and non-GMO premium products at wholesale prices. How do they do that? Thrive Market cuts out all the middlemen and works directly with the brands, and then they pass the savings on to their members. And even better for everyone who signs up, Thrive Market donates a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. And so together, we are all making healthy living affordable for everyone. And it's a company I am honored to support. Thrive Market also makes it super easy to shop. Not only is it all online and shipped straight to your door, but every single product on their site is tagged by over 90 different values or categories. So in one click, you can sort the entire catalog by categories like non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, paleo, sustainably farmed, etc. Get 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. Now, keep in mind, Thrive's market prices are already up to 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. So do the math. If you normally spend $100 at the grocery store, it's going to be 50 or 75 on Thrive Market because of their already low prices, and then they're going to give you an extra 25% off. Maybe you will be making a grocery store run this week. Probably so. Why not give Thrive Market a try and shop from home? Visit thrivemarket.com slash friends. That's thrivemarket.com slash friends for that 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. You can trust Thrive Market's options will be sourced from the best of the best ingredients at the most affordable prices. They do all the homework for you. That's thrivemarket.com slash friends. And now John Favreau probably needs no introduction, but yeah, you know him from Pod Save America, uh, last administration, stuff like that. And he's going to help me out with a listener question. John, thank you for joining me. Of course. All right, let's hear the question. How do you respond when liberal turns on the liberal? Like, I'm not liberal enough for the conversation. You know, I'm not far enough polarized to advance their ideas. I don't have a place at their table because I want to have some kind of structure to our criticism that doesn't take people's families and use them as pawns. 
So, liberal on liberal violence. I what? Hate it. How do we do it? Do you know anything about this, John? Do you, are you familiar <laughs> with liberals turning on liberals? Is that? It's so funny. It um, it drives me nuttier than um, liberal on conservative. And I don't know if that's just because we are now like so polarized that maybe I've I don't want to have given up on that. <laughs> um, but when you say drives me crazy, you mean it upsets you more? It upsets me a lot. It upsets me. And it's not because I don't value debate, um, but it's because so often, I think, when it's liberal on liberal, it's not about, like, if it's debating policy issues, if you say, like, I'm for single payer, and the other person's like, I think single payer isn't pragmatic, and then everyone, like, goes at it and talks about different policy details. I think that's an important conversation to have. But so much of it today is, like, personality-driven, and... Um, you, there's a lot of, and I say, this is all about like Twitter and social media and cable, right? It's like, people don't believe that the other person's argument is in good faith. And I mean, the most obvious one is there's still like the Bernie versus Hillary fights. I don't know if you've seen those. I'm, tell me more about the <laughs> Bernie versus Hillary fights. Cause you know what, actually I was going to, what I was going to say, I seem to have observed, and this is just as an observer. Right. Yeah. It's not Bernie Hillary. It's Hillary versus everyone. Like, yeah. There seems to be a problem in the Democratic Party right now, which is like, there's not just people, it is a little fighting the last war. No, it's actually a lot. Yeah. It's literally fighting the last war. I mean, I keep... I because keep, it's not, there's no, there's no one like making, well, there's very few people I would say that are having an argument with Hillary supporters about like trying to put forward Bernie. It's just arguing about tribes. Right. And I, and I always try to push it forward because it's like, okay, there's obviously things we can learn from 2016. I think things we should learn from 2016 going forward, but we're not going to run 2016 again and we don't need to wallow in 2016. And it was also kind of a black swan election. I and mean, it, it's like, it's completely And again, crazy. the nuance gets lost and right. that you can say what led to Hillary's defeat. Russia, yes. Comey, yes. Sexism, yes. Um, her as a candidate, yes. Uh, the media, yes. So there's a yes to all these things, but that sort of gets lost in the whole thing. But I try to project ahead and say, okay, well, what's 2020 going to look like when we have 15 candidates? And you're going to have, if Bernie runs, you're going to have a Bernie crew. Maybe Elizabeth Warren runs. You've got a, a Elizabeth Warren crew. you got, maybe it's Jason Kander. Maybe it's Kamala Harris. Maybe, it, you know, and, and Kirsten Gillibrand. And I really fear that if there are people behind 10, 15 candidates, and I'm hoping everyone runs who wants to run, that there's going to be a lot of angry people online, and they're all going to be <laughs> angry Democrats. Someone is angry on the internet. Someone's on the internet, but it's going to be a bunch of angry Democrats, and it's good to have a spirited debate, um, and we were part of that in 08, but I also remember in 08, like, it got too much. You know, like looking back at 08, especially because then Hillary became secretary of state and we all got along very well in the Obama administration. It's sort of embarrassing to look back at 08 and be like, we got really nasty. <laughs> and for for personality reasons and characteristic reasons it and got, not policy it reasons. It got tribal. It got very and, tribal. And that's even what's happening now, I think, outside of creating teams around specific candidates. And what I see is people... Even if it seems like you're having a policy debate, like if you say I want single payer, it turns into like, oh, so you're one of those people. Right. 
You want single pair, huh? You know? Um, <laughs> well, wait, I, had this, I, I had this whole problem with the, with the Bernie folks because um, I don't even know what started the— Oh, I know what started it. Uh, Andy Slavitt, who we know does—he um, ran Medicare for the uh, Obama administration, and he came out with this organization called the United States of Care, and— uh, he asked me if I would, you know, be one of the advisors on the board, and I said, "Of course, you're going to healthcare. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm for you. Great. <laughs> I'm pro healthcare. I'm pro healthcare, and I want to help you out. And you know, you've been great. You stopped, right, you, right. you know. And so, it came out, and of course, you know, they used a lot of words on their website like access and and what the left sees as sort of weasel words. Mm-hmm. And if I had seen that in advance, I would have been like, "Don't use those words." But anyway, they did, and because I was associated, I got so attacked by by people on the left online. And I made the mistake of um, responding to people on Twitter. <laughs> you <laughs> which, do it every time. Which pe- Yeah, I know, and I don't want to, but I, I I also want to be a kind of person who's reasonable and has conversations with people. And so again, this whole thing, it, it really upset me for a while. And then fast forward to like weeks later or month later, we had a crooked conversation with Andy and Adam Gaffney, Dr. Adam Gaffney, who's a single-payer advocate. And the three of us talked through single-payer versus not single-payer. And we had the most productive, good conversation. They like disagreed on some things, but it was okay. It was like good, healthy debate. Everyone found some common ground at the end. And I was so happy about it. Um, but I, it's made me realize, and I've had this these same problems with some, you know, diehard Hillary supporters when I announced um, my podcast about the Democratic Party, because when I said, what's wrong with the Democratic Party and how do you fix it? A lot of people took that as like I was somehow attacking Hillary for losing in 2016, which Democratic I wasn't. Democratic Party is perfect. Right. Of course, it's perfect. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not, you know, and I said she, you know, I said it was a very winnable election. I said it was the most winnable election in history and she lost to the most unpopular candidate. And, you know, I shouldn't have said most winnable election in history because that's a tough thing to figure out. But that set a lot of people off. And again, you try to answer on Twitter and it never works out. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is I think that when it's liberal on liberal stuff, like I don't, the internet just doesn't help. It's it's not possible. Like we have to talk to each other in person and, or you can write things that are more than 200 characters, right? Because people who write, sometimes people I don't agree with online, they write like an 800 word piece. And I'm like, oh, there's so much more reasonable. The whole 800 words does it. Huh? Yeah, right. Oh. 800 words. Right. Like there's so much more reasonable in this piece than, than they are on Twitter. You I know? would actually advocate, okay, yes, op-eds are good, but I'm going to advocate actually in person. You're too. right. Oh, that's the best. I it mean, is the best. It is the best. And also I think a, a kind of practical aside or practical, uh, suggestion for this listener is that kind of try to get out of the way whether or not you're arguing about a tribal identification or policy. Mm-hmm. Because if you're arguing about a tribal identification, then maybe you just step back. <laughs> like if, you, if you're if you going to a place where it's, oh, it's, you're one of those people or you're an ex-supporter, that st- starts to sound like tr- you're picking sides. Yeah. Whereas like, okay, what's the thing we're arguing? What's actually the thing we're arguing about? Is it p- single payer? You know, is it intervention, you know, in other countries? Is it drone strikes? Is it like, what is the actual thing? I think I think that's very important. I think the other thing to focus on is because we're all liberals, we all share certain goals, certain mm-hmm. policy and political goals. And if you focus with people on how are we going to reach that goal? So let's be activists and organizers in our minds and figure out how we're going to get there. Um, it's usually more productive because I now have friends and acquaintances, some of them that I've just met on Twitter, right, who 
are Bernie, people who are on the Bernie campaign, people who are on the Hillary campaign, or people who are part of organizations that are actually doing activism. Those people you almost never have problems with. Yeah. You know, because they've been in the fight, they've been in the trenches. And so they know that sometimes you have to compromise with people who you don't necessarily agree with all the time. And, you know, you have to, you just have to work with people <laughs> because you're in a campaign, you have to work with people. You don't all agree, but you all have to figure out the same goal. Same thing in an organization, a nonprofit and activism. And it's the people who seem like their only job is to comment on things and be online and be angry. Be angry online? Yeah. That those are people that are less productive on both sides, mm-hmm. you know? And so I find that the people who are activists, no matter who you supported. <laughs> I will actually toss in also people who are paid to have opinions. Yeah. Not that I know any of them or <laughs> have been one, recovering, recovering person paid to have opinions. Yeah. Those people are also, if you're paid to have an opinion, you're actually paid not to compromise in a way. Right. So those people can be not the most productive to argue with. Where I thought you were going with this particular question, and I think it's also, but it dovetails with what your response is about people in the trenches, is that besides figuring out if you're talking about tribes or policy, um, when you are arguing about policy, okay, is there a thing we're both trying to get to? Right. Is there a thing we both agree is the ultimate good? Because like, for instance, talking to a conservative person about immigration, for instance, if they just don't think people should be allowed in the country... It's an easy conversation to not have. Right. <laughs> Which is why that, com- it's probably why that doesn't bother me as more because I don't feel like, like, like if someone doesn't, if, yeah. yeah, if there's a conservative that like, that person doesn't belong in this country at all, I'm like, okay, yeah. well, Thank even you. if I, I was in person. I have free per- time now. Yeah. I'm going to go get a burrito. <laughs> you know, as in person with you, that wouldn't happen. But if it's someone who's like, the Democrats were wrong for not shutting down the government over DACA. Um, then I can say, okay, let's sit down and talk about why you believe that or why I believe that and why you take the other side. And what would have been the thing that we would have accomplished? And is that the thing we want to accomplish? Is that our end goal? Yeah. And it's like, we both believe these people should be able to stay in this country and become citizens. We believe that. So let's figure out the politics of the best way to get it done. And we can be, and then the best thing you can get to is people saying like, okay, well, I'm disappointed. I don't think you've pushed hard enough or I think you've pushed too hard. You're like, okay, well, we disagree on that, but we'll figure out a way to get there. I think we've answered this next question. Perfect. Thanks, John. Great. Thanks. That is it for the show this week. Thank you for making it to the very end of the show, super fans. Rate and review. If you haven't already, recommend this podcast to people who you might think like it. And if you have a question for the show, a question that deals with the intersection of relationships and politics, how politics impact relationships and relationships impact politics, well, you should send it to the show. In audio version, if possible, also in text version, you've seen both. That's really great. But one or the other is also fine. The email is with friends like pod at Gmail. Again, that's with friends like pod at Gmail. I hope you have a good week. And most important of all, please take care of yourself. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.